My name is Eduardo Sparza. I am the founder and CEO of Blue Dot Project and the host of the Climate Evers podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into the stories of entrepreneurs and changemakers who play a critical role in valuing and supporting the Earth's natural capital. Here we acknowledge that nature provides critical services to modern society like water, regulating our climate, and making land inhabitable. But we take nature's services for granted, depleting it faster than the Earth can naturally regenerate. So if the current system values nature more dead than alive, then we need to change the system. We need economic models, businesses, and policies that properly value our planet's natural capital. In this podcast, we talk with entrepreneurs and heroes changing the system from within. We go deep into their personal stories, inspirations, and unique approaches. Together, we unravel what it truly takes to shift the system into one that secures a brighter, more abundant, and sustainable future that supports all life on Earth. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. In today's episode, we have Rob Delat. Rob is a nerd systems thinker who realizes this is the most consequential decade in the history of humanity and advocate about addressing climate change through the management of the hydrological cycle. Rob is co-founder of the World Climate School and an European Climate Pact Ambassador. Rob is also a project lead for the Amazon team of Seeding Hope with Water, an initiative to regenerate our planet by the Eco Restoration Alliance, and the founder of Arara, the Uber platform of reforestation, an application and enterprise aiming to activate millions of people to earn money with reforestation, forest protection, and the switch to agroforestry. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Eduardo. Thank you for having me. Great. So Rob, impressive trajectory. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your journey? How did you end up where you are? Actually, my journey started at the age of 16. So it won't bother you with the whole thing because I'm 66 now. But basically it started first with reading Limits to Growth, the famous book that basically showed that we were up against the limits as a species on our limited planet. And the second one, I was obsessed by what is consciousness. And what is a thought? How does it work? And that made me study philosophy, but I actually flunked out of university because I got actually quite bored by it. So instead of that, I did a lot of traveling around the world. So I visited maybe a hundred countries or so. I lived on four continents. And luckily I've been in a lot in touch with, uh, with nature. For instance, I've been a, a, a safari guide for two and a half years in East Africa, one of the places I love. But many other places, I lived in India and other places. And so basically all the time while I was having this wonderful life in the background, there was this lingering shadow that we were up against a crisis of unknown proportion. And every time when there was a crisis, I thought, well, it's definitely bigger than this one, but I couldn't see the dimensions. And I think it took me until 2013 to understand the full dimension of it, which is basically threatening the whole web of life on the planet. Not that I think that we are capable of killing all life on the planet, but we are certainly able of making it shrink to very low levels out of which it would take millions of years to recover and probably without us. So. From 2013, I've been really thinking about how do we get ourselves out of the mess we're in? And that's basically has been my work till then. 
and I've been operating the last 10 years or so from a valley in the, in the Atlantic rainforest in Brazil, where I've been reforesting every wilding and area. And that actually was basically my greatest teacher because nature started to teach me that nature is very resilient and that we don't have to do too much to turn things around. We just give nature a little push in the right direction instead of hacking away at it all the time. So I'll leave it at that for now. Tell us a little bit more about the top initiatives that you're working on today. I recently tried to make a list of the projects and I'm probably involved in about 30 projects. So it's a bit ridiculous, but let me start with the priority. The priority is that right now the Amazon rainforest, which is the size of Australia, is starting to die back on the southeast side because it is drying out and trees in a tropical rainforest need a, a lot of rain in order to stay alive. And this is a self-reinforcing cycle of dieback that can become a runaway event within 10 years, maybe. And if that happens, then basically we'll lose this with what I call a, a planetary organ. Uh, and basically it will disrupt the balance on the planet that much that our species basically is a goner. Not saying that all humans would die, but uh, certainly global, connected, complex societies will not be able to survive. So we have to stop and reverse the dieback of the Amazon rainforest, which is possible. And the most heavily affected area, I understand, is like the Cerrado on the southeast, exactly right? That's correct. That's where they've hacked away too much at it for, because of agriculture and, and cow pastures. Everybody understands by now that the trees basically make rain. So if you take away the rainmakers, then there will be less rain. And this is a process that becomes a vicious circle. And that has happened over there. So we need to basically bring back higher levels of precipitation and longer rainy seasons. And that sounds a little magic, but that is what trees can do. And the, the way you do that is by doing it at the entrance of what, uh, what we call atmospheric rivers of moisture coming from, in this case, the Atlantic Ocean. And if you reforest the area at the place where it's entering, then it will suck in more moisture from the ocean. So you repair the climate with trees. And this is based on the theory of the biotic pump and specifically the work of Antonio Nogre, who is one of the top scientists in this field. The entire world and funding has mobilized or is mobilizing in an increasing way to, to CO2 emission reductions. And you have been pretty vocal about prioritizing efforts. The fact that prioritizing CO2 emission reductions is not the main thing. It's important, but it's not the main problem to regulate climate. This is innovation. I mean, this is a new thought for many people. Can you explain to us a little bit more about why is CO2 not the main issue? The current science works from a materialist, mechanic worldview that looks very much at, for instance, the atmosphere as a chemical substance. While if you look at the whole world as an inter connected living being, then you would have to look at it differently. And then you suddenly see that actually the world has been regulating its own climate and weather more and more over the course of millions of years. And you see that the water cycle has a central role in that balancing. And everybody actually understands that. I mean, you don't take a shower for nothing in the morning. The understanding that water plays a crucial role in all of life. First of all, there is no life without water. 
but also in, in, in cooling it, in making it grow and, and in all its forms, in ice, in water, and in vapor, in clouds, in rivers. Without that, there wouldn't be life. And somehow the water cycle gets very little attention when we look into the programs about how to solve the climate crisis. And I think that's a big mistake. Of course, we need to decarbonize. There, I have no questions about that. I'd like to stress that it's an important submission and that luckily is getting on the way, although we're still very far because we're still going to have a top year of emissions again, but bringing in the knowledge about how the water cycle cools the planet, but also calms the weather. Uh, if it's done right, I think is crucial because otherwise we will be running out of time if we don't include this crucially important element. Can you um, describe the biotic pump? It's actually quite simple. Trees pump up water and evaporate that through their leaves where they go up as water vapor. And they do that accompanied by small biochemical particles, which actually help as seeds to make raindrops. So basically when the vapor goes up together with what is called BVOX, those are those little particles. At some points they will form raindrops and clouds and fall back on the earth. So that's the biotic pump. There's a couple of facets, which are very important in that biotic pump. The first thing is that it takes a lot of energy. If you put on the kettle to boil uh, for, uh, for a cup of tea, you know how much energy it needs to vaporize that water. And so basically those trees use energy, solar energy to transform liquid water into vapor. And basically with that, take heat from the surface and put it up in the upper atmosphere. So that's already a form of local cooling uh, and that's very crucial and again everybody knows if you walk under a tree if you are in a forest you know that it creates its own atmosphere yeah. so it's very intuitive it's very easy to understand now the second thing is that the moment that the water vapor molecule goes back into the condensate state it emits energy uh, in the form of photons and that, that energy goes in all directions like the sun it shines in all directions here if it is emitted in all directions. And those photons are not reabsorbed as far as I understand by the atmosphere, which means that half of that heat is actually leaving into space, which is not in models. And that's a huge amount of energy. So there's actually, basically the biotic pump is the naturally evolved air conditioner of the earth. So while we are decarbonizing our industries, we are still hacking away at our air conditioners, at our natural air conditioners, because we do not understand how crucially important they are, not just for local cooling of microclimates, but in the end for the whole planet. It's referred to as a theory, the biotic pump theory. Is it really still a theory or is it the widely accepted fact? It's not widely accepted, unfortunately. Well, you know, I'd eat my hat if it wasn't true. And you know why? Because a, a, a lot of Complex science quite often basically starts off from an intuition and then everybody starts doing measurements and writes uh, incredibly complicated papers to basically in the end find out uh, if it's true or not, if that intuition is true or not. I think that anybody who has lived in a rainforest and sees the daily interaction between the trees and the water and the atmosphere 
and the forests for forming their own clouds. And you can see in front of your eyes, understand that this is a fact. And actually, I, I've been reforesting that valley where I live for a couple of years. And the temperatures, no, I didn't measure it, but the temperatures have gone down considerably in that valley. And people say that when they come to my valley, it's much cooler than the place where they live, you know, a mile down the road. It's basically obvious to anybody that trees in combination with rain and with water have a cooling function. So I think maybe we should make things a little simpler instead of making them more complex. So trees have in reality more value than what we realize. So it has a natural cooling effect. What is the implication for the planet? What happens once the vapor is in the air? You know, there's this, what is it, humidity of rivers? Flowing around the planet, I mean, well, well, how does the cooling effect actually work for the, uh, for the world? Well, it, in all kinds of ways. Let, let me first maybe start with the fact that this biotic pump, because the moment, so the molecule goes from vapor to liquid water, it becomes smaller. So you get a little, you get under pressure and under pressure draws in humidity. So while the principal movement is vapor going up and rain going down, there's also a lateral movement pulling in air from the side because it forms low pressure. So what you see is that atmospheric rivers start at points where the forest meets the oceans and suck in humidity from the oceans. Now, if there is a continuation of forests for a long time, you see that actually that water is pushed on all the way over the continents. It's already quite clear, for instance, that the deforestation in Europe is likely a large reason why desertification in northern China has increased because the water vapor that comes in from the Atlantic Ocean, which was pushed through the medieval forests and through the Siberian forests, all the way would be able to moisturize the whole continent. And that's what the biotic pump does. So if you interrupt that with large patches of non-forest, then basically the biotic pump stops and you get desertification. In the visual, we can see kind of two flows of this water river flows, you call them? Atmospheric rivers. Uh, atmospheric rivers, I think is a good so you, so you see two flows. One that starts somewhat in Africa, moving into the Amazon. And then dispersing downwards into Patagonia and then upwards through Mexico into the west coast of the United States and yes. then circling back around. Yes. So, and then the other one goes from Africa upwards to Europe and then all the way down to Asia. Exactly. And then yeah. basically makes a turn over Indonesia into the monsoons of India. And if there was no interruption because of deforestation, it would push on all the way over Balochistan, Iran, Oman, Yemen, what is now the Saudi desert. And all the way it would connect to the atmospheric rivers of Africa, which basically come in on the east side and flow all the way over the west side where they come out and they connect to the Amazon. And I'd like to add one detail here is that we also have to understand the dimension of it because again, Antonio Nobre has shown that it, the atmospheric river over the Amazon uh, holds more water on average than the river system itself, which is by far the largest river system in the world. So there's more water in the sky than flowing through the river. So it's really an incredible amount. Well, so, you know, I am from northwest of Mexico in Baja 
And I, I see the problems around all that peninsula, all the way up to California, right? Of all these droughts increasing. We're deforesting, what, about 17%, 20% of the Amazon so far. This has an implication directly then on the droughts on California and, and Baja. Well, on the one hand, more research needs to be done because there's not a lot of scientific research of the direct relationship with these things. At the same time, we don't have time to do all this research and we have to act on the information we have right now. But you could say that, and it's not just the Amazon. Don't forget there has been a lot of deforestation from the tropical areas of Mexico down all the way to, well, luckily Costa Rica is doing a great job, but at least uh, until, I mean, Nicaragua, Honduras, etc. So, so I would say there's, it's almost definitely, it has a, has a direct effect. And I, I would also like to say another thing is we all talk about global warming, but a lot of the problem that we deal with is not about the 1.2 degrees increase in temperature, but it's what we call the, the drought flood side. At some point you have immense rain events, which I'm sure California had as well. And basically inches of rain, they drop down in a matter of hours, then wash off. And then the whole thing dries out again. So you, that's what I call the flood drought cycle. And that's caused because, because of the deforestation. Tell me, what are the key regions where we need to intervene to support this planetary air conditioning system? I agree with things like the One Trillion Tree uh, program. And there are talks about basically regenerating a billion hectares of uh, degraded land around the world. And I think that's the science we have to look at. So, but then. That's a lot of work and we're very late in the game. And so we have to start with what I call strategic intervention. Well, the first one I already mentioned is the Amazon, where you see that the moisture, the atmospheric river basically comes in on the Northeast side between two cities where a lot of deforestation is taking place. So if you would reforest there, it would draw in the atmospheric river. The other one I think, which is extremely crucial is we see huge droughts in the Horn of Africa. And we also see that atmospheric rivers that probably used to be there, we don't have satellite data from a hundred years ago, but they are not connected anymore to the vapor of the Congo forest that then goes off out on the west side of Africa. So I think reforesting the area, sort of a corridor for this atmospheric river, uh, somewhere along the Somali coast and in the Kenyan coast, all the way inland, uh, so that it can connect to the moisture. If you see, for instance, South Sudan is very moist. In fact, they have so much moist, they have big floods programs because the project pond is working very well, but the moist can't go anywhere because there's no flow because all other sites, it has been cut off. So it's sort of raining on itself all the time. The third one, which is crucially important is the area where most of the moisture comes in from the Bay of Bengal uh, into India, uh, because you see, of course, one of the the biggest tipping points of danger we have right now is the melting of what they call the third pole. The glaciers over the Himalayas, I think this is about 90,000 glaciers, if I'm not mistaken, and they're melting back very fast. Once that goes, this one and a half to two billion people are dependent on the rivers that come from the third pole, from the Himalayas and the Tibetan plateau. Now they're melting and that's part because of the heating up of the planet, no doubt. Also is because of the interruption of the biotic pump. Because in the area, a lot of the forest has been cut for cities, agricultural and mining activities. So if you could restore, let's say, okay, we had a magic wand and tomorrow we would have 
continuous forest all the way up to the Himalayan foothills, it's likely that the amount of precipitation on the third pole would increase rapidly, which means you would help the glaciers. And at the same time, it would widen the whole area. So it would cool. So you get a sort of a, a positive feedback. But then if we just continue, we'd actually have to have that flow continue over the, the tar desert and, and the Indus Valley, all the way connected to Oman to get it into the Middle East near Saudi Peninsula. So there's a lot of reforestation, but I, I would say that those are a couple of the major projects, but I would love to talk to hydrologists, for instance, where would you plant key forests on the Iberian Peninsula, which is drying out uh, like that, also again, to have smaller flows of moisture coming in. So it looks like uh, around the equatorial line, basically across the planet uh, could essentially reinforce that biotic pump and that cooling effect. The biggest dynamics is around the tropical area because it simply gets more sunlight. The moisture, the biotic pumps are, are strongest. But I do agree with colleagues that all forests are important. But in your list of priorities, you get your biggest bang for your buck if you start in the tropics. For all kinds of reasons, because it's not just that it, it goes fastest downhill if you don't do something about it and uphill if you do something about it, okay. but also regenerating and, and transitioning to agroforestry in this area, for instance, can help a lot with food production, food security, what security, which is basically the biggest problem in those areas. So the first project you have listed is the Great Green Wall for the Amazon. And there is a section in the northeast of Brazil. Yes. yes. I think ideally an area roughly the size of Portugal is that would all be reforested. And I'm not just taking forest, good agroforestry, integrated agroforestry with a high canopy, but also with undergrowth of food products and stuff integrated in that area would help the biotic pump get the moisture to the southeast side. So the dieback in that area would stop, but it's not the only place. The Amazon is quite damaged and actually there's four points in the whole Amazon where I think we need to do crucial action, but this is the one on my plate. Well, speaking about the Amazon in particular, we have a trend severely going in the wrong direction. I mean, I was yes. looking at the charts of how deforestation has increased almost exponentially in the last two years. Yes. And it's evident that we have to stop that trend and then reverse it into a restoration trend. But I mean, in your opinion, how can we make this happen? What needs to happen so that actually the trend corrects? It's pretty simple if you think from a top level. Pay a million people a decent salary to protect, regenerate, and train everybody in agroforestry. Let's say that costs $1,000 per person per month. And then you need a million times a thousand. So that's a billion dollars per month. That's $12 billion a year. You would probably be able to reverse the trend because while there are real criminal consortia who know how to make money out of the devastation. The real work is done by, you know, very poor people who need to put food on the table for their kids and have a decent life. So if you can take them out of the process from destroyers and turn them into protectors and restorers, we can do that very fast. At the same time, there's a lot of indigenous people in the area which are the protectors of the forest, but they're only countered. But if we would give them the means to restore their own forests and protect their own forests, that would go a long way as well. Just from a CO2 uh, sequestration standpoint, I was running some numbers on 
Palos reforestation compared to the technology that is gaining traction is direct air capture. So just from the CO2 perspective, I was looking at the statistic of $600 per ton of CO2 captured by direct air capture technologies. And if we compare that to reforestation, I think in one of your articles, you mentioned there's 10 to 20 tons of CO2 per hectare, and it costs about $1,845. And that's a pessimistic approach. That's pessimistic number to restore a hectare of the Amazon, which comes down basically to about $123 per ton. That's for the first three years. And then it's practically free forever after that. Worst case scenario, really, <laughs> looks like at least three times cheaper to just reforest than buy these expensive CO2 machines. Not even taking into account all these other advantages of the cooling effect that has not been considered in some of the models. So the cold benefits alone would make it a no-brainer to focus on. Second one is... Let's not forget that even if those machines work and could be doing it at a certain price, they need a lot of resources. They are nowhere circular. I mean, you have to have all kinds of metals and stuff like that in big industries. Let's switch back to this initiative called Sitting Hope with Water. Can you tell us a bit, a bit more about what is it and um, what is it trying to accomplish? Okay, let me first say that from my perspective, and I think at least I would like to honor the brave words of Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations. I have a feeling that people still don't understand how near we are to the precipice. At some point, you get a cascading collapse of societies and we won't have the resilience to get ourselves out of the hole we've dug. Nature will do that, but nature will do that without it. So we need to act now. And we need to act fast and at the scale of a problem, which is huge. Now, humans usually, in the end, do what is necessary after they have made all the other mistakes before they act. And we really need to wake up everybody. So the plan basically has a couple of pillars that you could say, you know, I'm talking a little bit mechanical, but we need all the cylinders fired up at the same time in order to really get the ship making the big turn. Okay, the first one is we need to look at the climate models and include the water cycle and see that if you include the water cycle and the regeneration of land and front load that in the whole action on climate worldwide, you see that we can calm the weather because forests calm weather. Forests don't allow for droughts. They don't allow for heat waves. They don't allow for flash floods. They absorb those. So we have a problem with extreme weather rather than the global warming of 1.2. Okay, so you have to have put the water cycle into the climate models and the climate science so that people understand this is crucially important. Front load that the decarbonization needs to happen, energy transition needs to happen. We have to go circular, we have to eat less meat and all of that, but we need to front load regeneration. Okay, that's one. So that's, that's on the science level. On the business level, the insurers and the pension funds basically see from their own models that their future is going out of the window. Basically, their, their business model is broke when the effects of climate change, which are the damage of that, is accelerating and accelerating. They can't insure because all the insurance becomes too big or they have to shrink their customer base because they can't insure a lot of things because most things become more and more uh, risky to insure. 
And the pension funds, they can't find any secure assets anymore to invest in to make sure that they can pay the pension fund in 20 years or so. So regenerating the planet is actually the best investment for the large financial industry and money talks, as we all know, to get their risk models back into a way that they work. Right now, they're going all over the place, but basically they're out of business and they know it. Okay, so that's the financial aspect. I think we have a decade to make the great journey. Otherwise, simply we'll go into cascading collapse, like already is happening in parts of the world. That means we have to scale up this and basically involve everyone. Uh, at least half a billion. Okay, half a billion of smallholders, farmers in the global south should get payments for regenerating their own land and talk now anywhere from Indonesia to the Southeast Asia, South Asia, India, but all the way to Pakistan and in Africa and in other parts of Latin America. So that they would be able to regenerate their land and with that calm the weather and cool back. Now the last thing is, and maybe that's important. Right now, the world is suffering tumorism. They think, okay, we've had it. We're going down the drain. The moment that the climate youths and the youths that are in the global north realize that this is actually a way out, they will, they will join in. They will stop protesting the governments that are not doing enough and protesting the oil companies that are not doing enough. They say, get out of the way. We'll do it ourselves. And I think that energy that hope that we can bring to the whole thing and in fact make it a sort of a wave of regenerative energy will really entice the whole world to come along and really do it. We need that. It's going to be the largest movement our species ever has done in the history of mankind. So is that what the Open Water Initiative uh, aims to do? It, making the flow of money go to the people who needed to restore the land? Yes, that's one of the big parts. And for this, you need a lot of technological platforms. So if you, if you design a system, and I roughly know how to do that, if you design a system where people could upload themselves and their land on a platform and say, okay, I want to regenerate and give them a sort of a menu, what is the nicest way to do it in the place, then they get some finance to do that based on the carbon sequestration that would happen over a period of 20 years. It's like a mortgage. You buy a house, you get the money from a bank. And then you pay off installments. And because if you regenerate, you'll have army credits sequestration over a long period, then that money will come in. A, a hectare, let's say it does 15 tons per year in the tropics over a period of 20 years, that's uh, 300 tons. That's at, at a current price, let's say there's no clear pricing in that market. It's, it's not a mature market yet, but let's say it's yeah, $20. We're talking about $6,000 and we just talked that the restoring one would cost $1,800. So if you could get a credit for $1,800 to restore it, then the banks could easily make a reasonable profit to, to do the loan and make some money in the process. And actually the farmer would get more money again also. It's not even that complicated. We don't have to develop new technologies. We just have to assemble technologies that are already there. That's a good segue to talk about Arara. You know, what is it and what role is it playing in the seeding Hope with Water initiative? Because we have uh, some time constraints, I'd like to compare it with now socially and ecologically sound form of what I call a Starbucks chain combined with uh, Uber. But now it's the Uber of reforestation. 
Okay, what does the Starbucks chain do? That's the Arara shop. Basically, that's shopping your nearby town where you go for your regenerative needs, which is, uh, first of all, get yourself onboarded on that application with your terrain. So because you have to put it on a digital map, you have to show some ownership documents, etc. Then you have to model how that place should be regenerated. For instance, to agroforestry where you grow bananas with the cocoa beans and a couple of other things and large trees for shade. And then... That's, that app will make a calculation on how much it would cost to do that. And it would also make a calculation how much carbon would be sequestered over, let's say, a period of 20 years. And so it would automatically release credits to the account of that person if he or she agrees with the contract. And basically, they don't have to pay back the credits as long as the degrees are growing. So, and that's possible. There's a lot more detail to it. But why you need also this regenerative shop, the Arada shop, which is then a franchise everywhere, because there's more needs. For instance, the right kind of seeds, also some instruction and instruction videos. I myself, I've been dabbling a bit in cocoa farming and I've always neglected it because I had other things to do. But at some point I said, okay, let's try to do something. And some expert was a young man, he knew much about cocoa and he just, he was busy there for a couple of months. He doubled the harvest. I've no, I've no clue what he did actually, <laughs> but anyway, so if you get the expertise to the people on the ground and they can actually increase their income, I've modeled the, the increase of income with smallholder farmers in the area where my valley is. And you see that you roughly get a doubling of income in, let's say four or five years. If you combine it with the carbon credit finance and the increase of productivity and also give it what you call it certification of, of that it's ecologically uh, sound produce. So you can actually double the income of smallholder farms in the South. And that's really what we need. Who needs to get involved? Who needs to wake up to make this, this new model a reality? The big word is finance, really, because we have the technology. We could get a first viable product and worked on a pilot project within months because we know who to do it. Right now, funding is, is a very complex process. It takes so much writing and, and so much formatting. And the practitioners who really know how to do it actually don't have the, maybe not even the writing skills, but also simply not the time. And they don't get paid for doing that. The Inter-American Development Bank said, if you really want this, we really like your project. So come on, let's do this. And then, uh, so I gave them a short uh, outline and then they said, yeah, that's wonderful. Okay. And then they sent me the requirements for the grant application and I looked through it and I had to rent also some specialism outside. So I said, well, okay, writing this grant application will cost $60,000 and you please give me $60,000 so that I, may, I will be able to organize the grant application. I've never heard from them again. I mean, 80% of the information they already had in my T-page. They could also have said, okay, we'll release 10%. Let's see what you come up with. And then, you know, we'll do the next tranche if you really follow through. Instead of making life so difficult, I also had to have an organization which had seven years of due diligence of books, et cetera. They make it so complicated. Basically, they make it almost impossible for the real change makers on the grounds to get it done. No, I think there's two layers to this. One is to get the project off the ground, right? And then you have another mechanism of finance to actually provide that bridge of the first five years for the landowner to execute the project 
I mean, you're talking about creating a very interesting multi-revenue model for families, right? Because they, they have the, the new practice regenerative agriculture upside, which is a higher yield of their land. And then also on top of that, we have carbon revenue. Right now, for if you look specifically to the finance agriculture, you see that for the current monoculture crops, they grow in six months and the non-perennial, uh, you get your pesticides and your chemical fertilizers, the bank will loan you the money and after six months, you have to pay it back after you harvested the crop. The transition to agroforestry, you take three to five years. So the whole financial uh, method doesn't work because their cycle is too small. So they have to think of a bigger cycle, which in other projects is not so difficult. I mean, there's, you have loans that can be paid back over five, 10 years, and you have mortgages that can be 30 years. So it's not unusual, but bankers are conservative and then they, it takes them a long time to, to embrace these new projects and, and products. Well, this is amazing. Let me ask you, how can people get involved with helping sitting up with water or helping out Arara? How can people learn, learn more about it? Those who want to get involved and help, reach out to me. The project is understaffed and underfunded. And I think maybe more than money, it would be wonderful for people who get engaged and become part of a team because we're looking at the largest project humanity has ever undertaken. Obviously it's not just through us, it would be a, a network of networks of, and communities and organizations, but we have to start somewhere. And so the, the basic plan is there and I'm sure it will change in all kinds of ways, but the outcome is non-negotiable. We need to regenerate our planet, calm the weather, cool the planet, and with that have the co-benefits of reducing hunger and food insecurity in the global south, which by the way also, and that's then also a message to politicians in the global north, which also will stem the flow of climate migrants because those will actually have incredibly bad pressure on the political systems of the Western countries. And basically there will be topples. You've seen what happened with Syria with just a couple of million people after the country basically collapsed in a sense. Just a few million already derailed the political system in Europe. How can people reach out to you, Rob? Mail me, I would say, yeah, that, that would be the most logical. And then and it, it could be a little time before I react because I have a bit of too much on my plate, but otherwise, yes, please. Or go to my website. It's a very small website. It's not very professional. It's futureoftheamazon.org. Very good. I want to read something from your article, our fish, really the last ones to discover water that I found really, really, really good and really clear. So while we're, we're destroying forests and without the cooling capacity of the earth, we attributed the heating to a higher climate sensitivity of CO2. The investment in the protection and reforestation of tropical rainforests and the transition to agroforestry will have a much larger cooling effect than the world realizes. It will also mitigate the effects of climate change in the global south, fast slowing the increasing flow of refugees as economic conditions improve fast. And it gets even better than that. Everyone knows that large forests actually temper weather extremes. Large, healthy forests do not allow droughts, heat waves, or extreme flash floods to occur. They protect food production and slow down storms. So forests also calm extreme weather. If the world pays the tropical areas 
to regenerative landscapes, we can accelerate the fight against climate change and biodiversity destruction while fighting global inequity. Thank you for today. Let's, let's jump to the uh, rapid five. Rob, what's your favorite author or book? Daniel Pinchback, a, a very courageous uh, writer who is on the edge of uh, what thinking what is possible. And uh, how soon is now is his 2017 books around which I formed a, a Facebook a group called Metamorphosis. So Daniel, thank you very much. I know personally. Number two is what climate leader do you look up to or inspires you? I was thinking about that. And actually, I think I'd like to mention two people which are not considered immediately climate leaders. The first one is a very unknown person, but he gave me guidance when I was young. He's an old Aborigine shaman, basically. And his name is Gabu Ted Thomas. And it was an honor to get to know him. And I think the other one, I think that I would, I would choose the unfortunately deceased Desmond Tutu. His amazing personality and his love. Yeah. Outshines almost anybody. Number three, if you had a magic wand. What will be the one thing you will change or problem you will fix today? The consciousness of people. Open the consciousness to the beauty of life. Don't be fearful. The planet has always been abundant and has given you life and actually everything that you needed. That abundance is still there. But if you are afraid of it, you won't find it. Number four, who do you think we need to have in the podcast? Well, Daniel Pinchback, obviously. That would be great. I like a lot of people in the Eco Restoration Alliance. I like John Liu, for instance. He's amazing, a regenerator. Yeah, I could mention a, a, a lot, a lot of people. Jamaica, Stevens, uh, Caitlin, uh, Archibald, Jake Kelly. God, there's so many. Number five and last one is do you think we'll make it? You know, the jury is out. We will know in the end or not, but it doesn't really matter because uh, as I sometimes say to people, it's better to have fought and lost than never to have fought. Thank you so much for being with us today, Rob. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to uh, tell my story. Mm -hmm.